0: persons who knew of my carelessness, and I had their assurance that it would not be told. It was long after the event that I ventured to tell the story. Suppose that package had fallen just a few feet farther away and been swept down by the stream. How many years of faithful service would it have required upon my part to wipe out the effect of that one piece of carelessness? I could no longer have enjoyed the confidence of those whose confidence was essential to success had fortune not favored me i have never since believed in being too hard on a young man even if he does commit a dreadful mistake or two and i have always tried in judging such to remember the difference it would have made in my own career but for an accident which restored to me that lost package at the edge of the stream a few miles from hollidaysburg i could go straight to the very spot today, and often as i passed over that line afterwards i never failed to see that light brown package lying upon the bank It seemed to be calling. All right, my boy, the good gods were with you, and don't do it again. At an early age, I became a strong anti-slavery partisan and hailed with enthusiasm the first national meeting of the Republican Party in Pittsburgh, February twenty-second, 1856, although too young to vote. I watched the prominent men as they walked the streets, lost in admiration for Senators Wilson, Hale, and others. Some time, before I had organized among the railroad men a club of a hundred for the New York Weekly Tribune, and ventured occasionally upon the short notes to the great editor, Horace Greeley, who did so much to arouse the people to action upon this vital question. The first time I saw my work in type in the then-flaming organ of freedom certainly marked a stage in my career. I kept that tribune for years. Looking back today, one cannot help regretting so high a price as a civil war had to be paid to free our land from the curse. But it was not slavery alone that needed abolition. The loose federal system with state rights so prominent would inevitably have prevented or at least long delayed the formation of one solid, all-powerful central government. The tendency under the southern idea was centrifugal. Today it is centripetal all drawn toward the center under the sway of the supreme court the decisions of which are very properly half the dicta of lawyers and half the work of statesmen uniformity in many fields must be secured marriage divorce bankruptcy railroad supervision control of corporations and some other departments should in some measure be brought under one head rereading this paragraph today july 1907 written many years ago it seems prophetic These are now burning questions. It was not long after this that the Railroad Company constructed its own telegraph line. We had to supply it with operators. Most of these were taught in our offices at Pittsburgh. The telegraph business continued to increase with startling rapidity. We could scarcely provide facilities fast enough. New telegraph offices were required. My fellow messenger boy, Davy McCargo, I appointed superintendent of the Telegraph Department March eleventh, 1859. I have been told that Davy and myself are entitled to the credit of being the first to employ young women as telegraph operators in the United States upon railroads, or perhaps in any branch. At all events, we placed girls in various offices as pupils, taught and then put them in charge of offices as occasion required. Among the first of these was my cousin, Miss Maria Hogan. She was the operator at the freight station in Pittsburgh, and with her were placed successive pupils, her office becoming a school. Our experience was that young women operators were more to be relied upon than young men. Among all the new occupations invaded by women, I do not know of any better suited for them than that of telegraph operator. Mr. Scott was one of the most delightful superiors that anybody could have, and I soon became warmly attached to him. He was my great man, and all the hero-worship that is inherent in youth I showered upon him. I soon began placing him in imagination in the presidency of the Great Pennsylvania Railroad, a position which he afterwards attained. Under him, I gradually performed duties not strictly belonging to my department, and I can attribute my decided advancement in the service to one well-remembered incident. The railway was a single line. Telegraph orders to trains often became necessary, although it was not then a regular practice to run trains by telegraph. No one but the superintendent himself was permitted to give a train order on any part of the Pennsylvania system, or indeed of any other system. I believe at that time it was then a dangerous expedient to give telegraphic orders, for the whole system of railway management was still in its infancy, and men had not yet been trained for it. It was necessary for Mr. Scott to go out night after night to breakdowns or wrecks to superintend the clearing of the line. He was necessarily absent from the office on many mornings. One morning, I reached the office and found that a serious accident on the Eastern Division had delayed the express passenger train westward, and that the passenger train eastward was proceeding with a flagman in advance at every curve. The freight trains in both directions were all standing still upon the sidings. Mr. Scott was not to be found. Finally, I could not resist the temptation to plunge in, take the responsibility, give train orders, and set matters going. "'Death or Westminster Abbey?' flashed across my mind. I knew it was dismissal, disgrace, perhaps criminal punishment, for me if I erred. On the other hand, I could bring in the wearied freight train men who had lain out all night. I could set everything in motion. I knew I could. I had often done it in wiring Mr. Scott's orders. I knew just what to do, and so I began. I gave the orders in his name, started every train— sat at the instrument watching every tick, carried the trains along from station to station, took extra precautions, and had everything running smoothly when Mr. Scott at last reached the office. He had heard of the delays. His first words were, "'Well, how are matters?' He came to my side quickly, grasped the pencil, and began to write his orders. I had then to speak, and timidly said, "'Mr. Scott?' I could not find you anywhere, and I gave these orders in your name early this morning. Are they going all right? Where is the Eastern Express? I showed him the messages and gave him the position of every train on the line. Freights, ballast trains, everything. Showed him the answers of the various conductors, the latest reports at the stations where the various trains had passed. All was right. He looked in my face for a second. I scarcely dared look in his. I did not know what was going to happen. He did not say one word, but again looked carefully over all that had taken place. Still he said nothing. After a little while he moved away from my desk to his own, and that was the end of it. He was afraid to approve what I had done, yet he had not censured me. If it came out all right, it was all right. If it came out all wrong, the responsibility was mine. So it stood but I noticed that he came in very regularly and in good time for some mornings after that. Of course, I never spoke to anyone about it. None of the trainsmen knew that Mr. Scott had not personally given the orders. I had almost made up my mind that if the like occurred again, I would not repeat my proceedings of that morning unless I was authorized to do so. I was feeling rather distressed about what I had done, until I heard from Mr. Franciscus, who was then in charge of the freighting department at Pittsburgh, that Mr. Scott, the evening after the memorable morning, had said to him, "'Do you know what that little white-haired Scotch devil of mine did?' "'No. I'm blamed if he didn't run every train on the division in my name without the slightest authority.' "'And did he do it all right?' asked Franciscus. Oh, yes, all right. This satisfied me. Of course I had my cue for the next occasion, and went boldly in. From that date it was very seldom that Mr. Scott gave a train order. The greatest man of all on my horizon at this time was John Edgar Thompson, President of the Pennsylvania, and for whom our steel rail mills were afterward named. He was the most reserved and silent of men, next to General Grant, that I ever knew, although General Grant was more voluble when at home with friends. He walked about as if he saw nobody when he made his periodical visits to Pittsburgh. This reserve, I learned afterwards, was purely the result of shyness. I was surprised when, in Mr. Scott's office, he came to the telegraph instrument and greeted me as Scott's Andy. But I learned afterwards that he had heard of my train-running exploit the battle of life is already half won by the young man who is brought personally in contact with high officials and the great aim of every boy should be to do something beyond the sphere of his duties something which attracts the attention of those over him some time after this mr scott wished to travel for a week or two and asked authority from mr lombert to leave me in charge of the division pretty bold man he was for i was then not very far out of my teens "'It was granted. Here was the coveted opportunity of my life. With the exception of one accident caused by the inexcusable negligence of a ballast train crew, everything went well in his absence. But that this accident should occur was gall and wormwood to me. Determined to fulfill all the duties of the station, I held a court-martial, examined those concerned, dismissed peremptorily the chief offender, and suspended two others for their share in the catastrophe.' Mr. Scott, after his return, of course, was advised of the accident, and proposed to investigate and deal with the matter. I felt I had gone too far, but having taken the step, I informed him that all that had been settled. I had investigated the matter and punished the guilty. Some of these appealed to Mr. Scott for a reopening of the case, but this I never could have agreed to, had it been pressed. More by look, I think, than by word, Mr. Scott understood my feelings upon this delicate point, and acquiesced. It is probable he was afraid I had been too severe, and very likely he was correct. Some years after this, when I, myself, was superintendent of the division, I always had a soft spot in my heart for the men then suspended for a time. I had felt qualms of conscience about my action in this, my first court a new judge is very apt to stand so straight as really to lean a little backward only experience teaches the supreme force of gentleness light but certain punishment when necessary is most effective severe punishments are not needed and a judicious pardon for the first offence at least is often best of all as the half-dozen young men who constituted our inner circle grew in knowledge it was inevitable that the mysteries of life and death the here and the hereafter should cross our path and have to be grappled with we had all been reared by good honest self-respecting parents members of one or another of the religious sects through the influence of mrs mcmillan wife of one of the leading presbyterian ministers of pittsburgh we were drawn into the social circle of her husband's church as I read this on the Moors, July 16, 1912, I have before me a note from Mrs. MacMillan from London in her 80th year. Two of her daughters were married in London last week, two university professors. One remains in Britain, the other has accepted an appointment in Boston. Eminent men, both. So draws our English-speaking race together. Mr. MacMillan was a good strict Calvinist of the old school his charming wife, a born leader of the young. We were all more at home with her, and enjoyed ourselves more at her home gatherings than elsewhere. This led to some of us occasionally attending her church. A sermon of the strongest kind upon predestination, which Miller heard there, brought the subject of theology upon us, and it would not down. Mr. Miller's people were strong Methodists, and Tom had known little of dogmas. This doctrine of predestination, including infant damnation, some born to glory and others to the opposite, appalled him. To my astonishment, I learned that, going to Mr. McMillan after the sermon to talk over the matter, Tom had blurted out at the finish, Mr. McMillan, if your idea were correct, your God would be a perfect devil, and left the astonished minister to himself. This formed the subject of our Sunday afternoon conferences for many a week was that true or not and what was to be the consequence of tom's declaration should we no longer be welcome guests of mrs macmillan we could have spared the minister perhaps but none of us relished the idea of banishment from his wife's delightful reunions there was one point clear carlyle's struggles over these matters had impressed us and we could follow him in his resolve if it be incredible in god's name let it be discredited it was only the truth that could make us free and the truth the whole truth we should pursue once introduced of course the subject remained with us and one after the other the dogmas were voted down as the mistaken ideas of men of a less enlightened age i forget who first started us with a second axiom it was one we often dwelt upon a forgiving god would be the noblest work of man we accept it as proven that each stage of civilization creates its own god and that as man ascends and becomes better his conception of the unknown likewise improves thereafter we all became less theological but i am sure more truly religious the crisis passed happily we were not excluded from mrs Macmillan's society it was a notable day however when we resolved to stand by miller's statement even if it involved banishment and worse We young men were getting to be pretty wild boys about theology, although more truly reverent about religion. The first great loss to our circle came when John Phipps was killed by a fall from a horse. This struck home to all of us, yet I remember I could then say to myself, John has, as it were, just gone home to England where he was born. We are all to follow him soon and live forever together. I had then no doubts it was not a hope I was pressing to my heart, but a certainty. Happy those who in their agony have such a refuge. We should all take Plato's advice and never give up everlasting hope, alluring ourselves as with enchantments, for the hope is noble and the reward is great. Quite right. It would be no greater miracle that brought us into another world to live forever with our dearest than that which has brought us into this one to live a lifetime with them. Both are equally incomprehensible to finite beings. Let us therefore comfort ourselves with everlasting hope, as with enchantments, as Plato recommends, never forgetting, however, that we all have our duties here, and that the kingdom of heaven is within us. It also passed into an axiom with us that he who proclaims there is no hereafter is as foolish as he who proclaims there is, since neither can know, though all may and should hope. Meanwhile, home our heaven instead of heaven our home was our motto. During these years of which I have been writing, the family fortunes had been steadily improving. My thirty-five dollars a month had grown to forty, an unsolicited advance having been made by Mr. Scott. It was part of my duty to pay the men every month. We used checks upon the bank, and I drew my salary invariably in two twenty-dollar gold pieces they seemed to me the prettiest works of art in the world it was decided in family council that we could venture to buy the lot and the two small frame houses upon it in one of which we had lived and the other a four-roomed house which till then had been occupied by my uncle and aunt hogan who had removed elsewhere It was through the aid of my dear Aunt Aitken that we had been placed in the small home above the weaver's shop, and it was now our turn to be able to ask her to return to the house that formerly had been her own. In the same way, after we had occupied the four-roomed house, Uncle Hogan, having passed away, we were able to restore Aunt Hogan to her old home when we removed to Altoona, $100 cash was paid upon purchase, and the total price, as I remember, was $700. The struggle, then, was to make up the semi-annual payments of interest, and as great an amount of the principal as we could save. It was not long before the debt was cleared off, and we were property holders, but before that was accomplished, the first sad break occurred in our family. In my father's death, October 2nd, 1855 fortunately for the three remaining members life's duties were pressing sorrow and duty contended and we had to work the expenses connected with his illness had to be saved and paid and we had not up to this time such store in reserve and here comes in one of the sweet incidents of our early life in america the principal member of our small swedenborgian society was mr david he had taken some notice of my father and mother but beyond a few passing words at church on sundays i do not remember that they had ever been brought in close contact he knew aunt aiken well however and now sent for her to say that if my mother required any money assistance at this sad period he would be very pleased to advance whatever was necessary he had heard much of my heroic mother and that was sufficient One gets so many kind offers of assistance when assistance is no longer necessary, or when one is in a position which would probably enable him to repay a favor, that it is delightful to record an act of pure and disinterested benevolence. Here was a poor Scottish woman bereft of her husband, with her eldest son just getting a start, and a second in his early teens, whose misfortunes appealed to this man, and who in the most delicate manner sought to mitigate them although my mother was able to decline the proffered aid it is needless to say that mr mccandless obtained a place in our hearts sacred to himself i am a firm believer in the doctrine that people deserving necessary assistance at critical periods in their career usually receive it there are many splendid natures in the world men and women who are not only willing but anxious to stretch forth a helping hand to those they know to be worthy As a rule, those who show willingness to help themselves need not fear about obtaining the help of others. Father's death threw upon me the management of affairs to a greater extent than ever. Mother kept on the binding of shoes. Tom went steadily to the public school, and I continued with Mr. Scott in the service of the railroad company. Just at this time, Fortunatus knocked at our door. Mr. Scott asked me if I had five hundred dollars. If so, he said he wished to make an investment for me. Five hundred cents was much nearer my capital. I certainly had not fifty dollars saved for investment, but I was not going to miss the chance of becoming financially connected with my leader and great man. So I said boldly, I thought I could manage that sum. He then told me that there were ten shares of Adams Express stock that he could buy, which had belonged to a station agent, Mr. Reynolds, of Wilkinsburg. Of course, this was reported to the head of the family that evening, and she was not long in suggesting what might be done. When did she ever fail? We had then paid five hundred dollars upon the house, and in some way she thought this might be pledged as security for a loan. My mother took the steamer the next morning for East Liverpool, arriving at night, and through her brother there the money was secured. He was a justice of the peace, a well-known resident of that then small town, and had numerous sums in hand from farmers for investment. Our house was mortgaged, and mother brought back the five hundred dollars which I handed over to Mr. Scott, who soon obtained for me the coveted ten shares in return. There was, unexpectedly, an additional hundred dollars to pay as a premium, but Mr. Scott kindly said I could pay that when convenient, and this, of course, was an easy matter to do this was my first investment. In those good old days, monthly dividends were more plentiful than now, and Adams Express paid a monthly dividend. One morning, a white envelope was lying upon my desk, addressed in a big John Hancock hand to Andrew Carnegie Esquire. Esquire tickled the boys and me inordinately. At one corner was seen the round stamp of Adams Express Company. I opened the envelope. All it contained was a check for $10 upon the Gold Exchange Bank of New York. I shall remember that check as long as I live, and that John Hancock signature of J. C. Babcock, cashier. It gave me the first penny of revenue from capital, something that I had not worked for with the sweat of my brow. Eureka! I cried. Here's the goose that lays the golden egg. It was the custom of our party to spend Sunday afternoons in the woods, I kept the first check and showed it as we sat under the trees in a favored grove we had found near Woods Run. The effect produced upon my companions was overwhelming. None of them had imagined such an investment possible. We resolved to save and to watch for the next opportunity for investment in which all of us should share, and for years afterward we divided our trifling investments and worked together almost as partners. Up to this time my circle of acquaintances had not enlarged much. Mrs. Franciscus, wife of our freight agent, was very kind and on several occasions asked me to her house in Pittsburgh. She often spoke of the first time I rang the bell of the house in Third Street to deliver a message from Mr. Scott. She asked me to come in. I bashfully declined, and it required coaxing upon her part to overcome my shyness she was never able for years to induce me to partake of a meal in her house i had great timidity about going into other people's houses until late in life but mr scott would occasionally insist upon my going to his hotel and taking a meal with him and these were great occasions for me mr franciscus's was the first considerable house with the exception of mr lombert's at altoona i had ever entered as far as i recollect Every house was fashionable in my eyes that was upon any one of the principal streets, provided it had a hall entrance. I had never spent a night in a strange house in my life until Mr. Stokes of Greensburg, chief counsel of the Pennsylvania Railroad, invited me to his beautiful home in the country to pass a Sunday. It was an odd thing for Mr. Stokes to do, for I could little interest a brilliant and educated man like him the reason for my receiving such an honor was a communication i had written for the pittsburgh journal even in my teens i was a scribbler for the press to be an editor was one of my ambitions horace greeley and the tribune was my ideal of human triumph strange that there should have come a day when i could have bought the tribune but by that time the pearl had lost its luster Our air castles are often within our grasp late in life, but then they charm not. The subject of my article was upon the attitude of the city toward the Pennsylvania Railroad Company. It was signed anonymously, and I was surprised to find it got a prominent place in the columns of the journal, then owned and edited by Robert M. Riddle. I, as operator, received a telegram addressed to Mr. Scott and signed by Mr. Stokes, asking him to ascertain from Mr. Riddle who the author of that communication was. I knew that Mr. Riddle could not tell the author, because he did not know him, but at the same time, I was afraid that if Mr. Scott called upon him, he would hand him the manuscript, which Mr. Scott would certainly recognize at a glance." i therefore made a clean breast of it to mr scott and told him i was the author he seemed incredulous he said he had read it that morning and wondered who had written it his incredulous look did not pass me unnoticed the pen was getting to be a weapon with me mr stokes invitation to spend sunday with him followed soon after and the visit is one of the bright spots in my life henceforth we were great friends the grandeur of mr stokes home impressed me but the one feature of it that eclipsed all else was a marble mantle in his library in the centre of the arch carved in the marble was an open book with this inscription he that cannot reason is a fool he that will not a bigot he that dare not a slave these noble words thrilled me i said to myself some day some day I'll have a library. That was a look ahead, and these words shall grace the mantle as here, and so they do in New York and Skibo today. Another Sunday, which I spent at his home after an interval of several years, was also noteworthy. I had then become the superintendent of the Pittsburgh division of the Pennsylvania Railroad. The South had seceded. I was all aflame for the flag mr stokes being a leading democrat argued against the right of the north to use force for the preservation of the union he gave vent to sentiments which caused me to lose my self-control and i exclaimed mr stokes we shall be hanging men like you in less than six weeks i hear his laugh as i write and his voice calling to his wife in the adjoining room nancy nancy listen to this young scotch devil He says they will be hanging men like me in less than six weeks. Strange things happened in those days. A short time after, that same Mr. Stokes was applying to me in Washington to help him to a major's commission in the volunteer forces. I was then in the Secretary of War's office, helping to manage the military railroads and telegraphs for the government." this appointment he secured and ever after was major stokes so that the man who doubted the right of the north to fight for the union had himself drawn sword in the good cause men at first argued and theorized about constitutional rights it made all the difference in the world when the flag was fired upon in a moment everything was ablaze paper constitutions included the union and old glory that was all the people cared for, but that was enough. The Constitution was intended to insure one flag, and as Colonel Ingersoll proclaimed, there was not air enough on the American continent to float two. End of Chapter 6 Recording by William Tomko Chapter 7 of Autobiography of Andrew Carnegie by Andrew Carnegie. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by William Tomko. Autobiography of Andrew Carnegie by Andrew Carnegie. Chapter 7 Superintendent of the Pennsylvania. Mr. Scott was promoted to be the general superintendent of the Pennsylvania Railroad in 1856, taking Mr. Lumbert's place, and he took me, then in my 23rd year, with him to Altoona. This breaking up of associations in Pittsburgh was a sore trial, but nothing could be allowed to interfere for a moment with my business career. My mother was satisfied upon this point, great as the strain was upon her. Besides, follow my leader was due to so true a friend as Mr. Scott had been. His promotion to the superintendency gave rise to some jealousy, and besides that, he was confronted with a strike at the very beginning of his appointment. He had lost his wife in Pittsburgh a short time before and had his lonely hours. He was a stranger in Altoona, his new headquarters, and there was none but myself seemingly of whom he could make a companion. We lived for many weeks at the Railway Hotel together before he took up housekeeping and brought his children from Pittsburgh, and at his desire I occupied the same large bedroom with him. He seemed anxious always to have me near him. The strike became more and more threatening. I remember being awakened one night and told that the freight train men had left their trains at Mifflin, that the line was blocked on this account and all traffic stopped. Mr. Scott was then sleeping soundly. It seemed to me a pity to disturb him, knowing how overworked and over-anxious he was, but he awoke, and I suggested that I should go up and attend to the matter. He seemed to murmur assent, not being more than half awake, so I went to the office and in his name argued the question with the men and promised them a hearing next day at Altoona. I succeeded in getting them to resume their duties and to start the traffic. Not only were the trainmen in a rebellious mood, but the men in the shops were rapidly organizing to join with the disaffected. This I learned in a curious manner. One night, as I was walking home in the dark, I became aware that a man was following me. By and by he came up to me and said, I must not be seen with you, but you did me a favor once, and I then resolved if ever I could serve you, I would do it. I called at the office in Pittsburgh and asked for work as a blacksmith you said there was no work then at pittsburgh but perhaps employment could be had at altoona and if i would wait a few minutes you would ask my telegraph you took the trouble to do so examined my recommendations and gave me a pass and sent me here i have a splendid job my wife and family are here and i was never so well situated in my life and now i want to tell you something for your good I listened, and he went on to say that a paper was being rapidly signed by the shopmen pledging themselves to strike on Monday next. There was no time to be lost, I told Mr. Scott in the morning, and he at once had printed notices posted in the shops that all men who had signed the paper pledging themselves to strike were dismissed, and they should call at the office to be paid. A list of the names of the signers had come into our possession in the meantime, and this fact was announced consternation followed and the threatened strike was broken i have had many incidents such as that of the blacksmith in my life slight attentions or a kind word to the humble often bring back rewards as great as it is unlooked for no kind action is ever lost even to this day i occasionally meet men whom i had forgotten who recall some trifling attention i have been able to pay them especially when in charge at washington of government railways and telegraphs during the civil war when i could pass people within the lines a father helped to reach a wounded or sick son at the front or enabled to bring home his remains or some similar service i am indebted to these trifles for some of the happiest attentions and the most pleasing incidents of my life and there is this about such actions they are disinterested and the reward is sweet in proportion to the humbleness of the individual whom you have obliged it counts many times more to do a kindness to a poor working man than to a millionaire who may be able some day to repay the favour how true wordsworth's lines the best portion of a good man's life, his little, nameless, unremembered acts of kindness and of love. The chief happening, judged by its consequences, of the two years I spent with Mr. Scott at Altoona arose from my being the principal witness in a suit against the company which was being tried at Greensburg by the brilliant Major Stokes, my first host. It was feared that I was about to be subpoenaed by the plaintiff and the Major, wishing a postponement of the case, asked Mr. Scott to send me out of the state as rapidly as possible. This was a happy change for me, as I was enabled to visit my two bosom companions, Miller and Wilson, then in the railway service at Crestline, Ohio. On my way thither, while sitting on the end seat of the rear car, watching the line, a farmer-looking man approached me. He carried a small green bag in his hand, he said the brakeman had informed him I was connected with the Pennsylvania Railroad. He wished to show me the model of a car which he had invented for night traveling. He took a small model out of the bag which showed a section of a sleeping car. This was the celebrated T. T. Woodruff, the inventor of that now indispensable adjunct of civilization, the sleeping car. Its importance flashed upon me. I asked him if he would come to Altoona if I sent for him, and I promised to lay the matter before Mr. Scott at once upon my return. I could not get that sleeping-car idea out of my mind, and was most anxious to return to Altoona that I might press my views upon Mr. Scott. When I did so, he thought I was taking time by the forelock, but was quite receptive, and said I might telegraph for the patentee. He came and contracted to place two of his cars upon the line as soon as they could be built. After this, Mr. Woodruff, greatly to my surprise, asked me if I would not join him in the new enterprise and offered me an eighth interest in the venture. I promptly accepted his offer, trusting to be able to make payments somehow or other. The two cars were to be paid for by monthly installments after delivery. When the time came for making the first payment, my portion was two hundred and 17 dollars 5 I boldly decided to apply to the local banker, Mr. Lloyd, for a loan of that sum. I explained the matter to him, and I remember that he put his great arm, he was six feet three or four, around me, saying, "'Why, of course I will lend it. You are all right, Andy.' And here I made my first note, and actually got a banker to take it. A proud moment, that, in a young man's career.' the sleeping-cars were a great success and their monthly receipts paid the monthly installments the first considerable sum i made was from this source Today, july nineteenth nineteen o nine as i reread this how glad i am that i have recently heard from mr lloyd's married daughter telling me of her father's deep affection for me thus making me very happy indeed One important change in our life at Altoona, after my mother and brother arrived, was that, instead of continuing to live exclusively by ourselves, it was considered necessary that we should have a servant. It was with the greatest reluctance my mother could be brought to admit a stranger into the family circle. She had been everything and had done everything for her two boys this was her life and she resented with all a strong woman's jealousy the introduction of a stranger who was to be permitted to do anything whatever in the home she had cooked and served her boys washed their clothes and mended them made their beds cleaned their home who dare rob her of those motherly privileges but nevertheless we could not escape the inevitable servant girl One came, and others followed, and with these came also the destruction of much of that genuine family happiness which flows from exclusiveness. Being served by others is a poor substitute for a mother's labor of love. The ostentatious meal prepared by a strange cook, whom one seldom sees, and served by hands paid for the task, lacks the sweetness of that which a mother's hands lay before you as the expression and proof of her devotion among her manifold blessings, I have to be thankful for, is that neither nurse nor governess was my companion in infancy. No wonder the children of the poor are distinguished for the warmest affection and the closest adherence to family ties, and are characterized by a filial regard far stronger than that of those who are mistakenly called more fortunate in life. They have passed the impressionable years of childhood and youth in constant loving contact with father and mother to each they are all in all no third person coming between. The child that has in his father a teacher, companion, and counselor, and whose mother is to him a nurse, seamstress, governess, teacher, companion, heroine, and saint all in one, has a heritage to which the child of wealth remains a stranger. There comes a time although the fond mother cannot see it, when a grown son has to put his arms around his saint and, kissing her tenderly, try to explain to her that it would be much better were she to let him help her in some ways, that, being out in the world among men and dealing with affairs, he sometimes sees changes which it would be desirable to make, that the mode of life delightful for young boys should be changed in some respects and the house made suitable for their friends to enter especially should the slaving mother live the life of ease hereafter reading and visiting more and entertaining dear friends in short rising to her proper and deserved position as her ladyship of course the change was very hard upon my mother but she finally recognized the necessity for it probably realized for the first time that her eldest son was getting on "'Dear mother,' I pleaded, my arms still around her, "'you have done everything for and have been everything to Tom and me. "'And now do let me do something for you. "'Let us be partners, and let us always think what is best for each other. "'The time has come for you to play the lady, "'and some of these days you are to ride in your carriage, "'meanwhile to get that girl in to help you. "'Tom and I would like this.' "'The victory was won.' and my mother began to go out with us and visit her neighbors. She had not to learn self-possession nor good manners. These were innate, and as for education, knowledge, rare good sense, and kindliness, seldom was she to meet her equal. I wrote never instead of seldom, and then struck it out. Nevertheless, my private opinion is reserved. Life at Altoona, was made more agreeable for me through Mr. Scott's niece, Miss Rebecca Stewart, who kept house for him. She played the part of elder sister to me, to perfection, especially when Mr. Scott was called to Philadelphia or elsewhere. We were much together, often driving in the afternoons through the woods. The intimacy did not cease for many years, and, re-reading some of her letters in 1906, I realized more than ever my indebtedness to her she was not much beyond my own age but always seemed a great deal older certainly she was more mature and quite capable of playing the elder sister's part it was to her i looked up in those days as the perfect lady sorry am i our paths parted so widely in later years her daughter married the earl of sussex and her home in late years has been abroad july nineteenth nineteen o nine mrs carnegie and i found my elder sister friend April last. Now in widowhood, in Paris, her sister and also her daughter all well and happy. A great pleasure, indeed. There are no substitutes for the true friends of youth. Mr. Scott remained at Altoona for about three years when deserved promotion came to him. In 1859 he was made vice-president of the company with his office in Philadelphia. What was to become of me was a serious question would he take me with him, or must I remain at Altoona with a new official? The thought was to me unbearable. To part with Mr. Scott was hard enough. To serve a new official in his place I did not believe possible. The sun rose and set upon his head, so far as I was concerned. The thought of my promotion, except through him, never entered my mind. He returned from his interview with the President at Philadelphia and asked me to come into the private room in his house, which communicated with the office. He told me it had been settled that he should remove to Philadelphia. Mr. Enoch Lewis, the division superintendent, was to be his successor. I listened with great interest as he approached the inevitable disclosure as to what he was going to do with me. He said, finally, now, about yourself do you think you could manage the pittsburgh division i was at an age when i thought i could manage anything i knew nothing that i would not attempt but it had never occurred to me that anybody else much less mr scott would entertain the idea that i was as yet fit to do anything of the kind proposed i was only twenty-four years old but my model then was lord john russell of whom it was said he would take the command of the channel fleet to-morrow so would wallace or bruce "'I told Mr. Scott I thought I could. "'Well,' he said, "'Mr. Potts, who was then superintendent of the Pittsburgh Division, "'is to be promoted to the Transportation Department in Philadelphia, "'and I recommended you to the President as his successor. "'He agreed to give you a trial. "'What salary do you think you should have?' "'Salary,' I said, quite offended. "'What do I care for salary? "'I do not want the salary. "'I want the position.' it is glory enough to go back to the pittsburgh division in your former place you can make my salary just what you please and you need not give me any more than what i am getting now that was sixty-five dollars a month you know he said i received fifteen hundred dollars a year when i was there and mr potts is receiving eighteen hundred i think it would be right to start you at fifteen hundred dollars and after a while if you succeed you will get the eighteen hundred would that be satisfactory? Oh, please, I said, don't speak to me of money. It was not a case of mere hire and salary, and then and there my promotion was sealed. I was to have a department to myself, and instead of signing T.A.S., orders between Pittsburgh and Altoona would now be signed A.C. That was glory enough for me. The order appointing me superintendent of the Pittsburgh division was issued December first, 1859 preparations for removing the family were made at once the change was hailed with joy for although our residence in altoona had many advantages especially as we had a large house with some ground about it in a pleasant part of the suburbs and therefore many of the pleasures of country life all these did not weigh as a feather in the scale as against the return to old friends and associations in dirty smoky pittsburgh my brother tom had learned telegraphy during his residence in altoona and he returned with me and became my secretary the winter following my appointment was one of the most severe ever known the line was poorly constructed the equipment inefficient and totally inadequate for the business that was crowding upon it the rails were laid upon huge blocks of stone cast-iron chairs for holding the rails were used and i have known as many as forty-seven of those to break in one night no wonder the wrecks were frequent the superintendent of a division in those days was expected to run trains by telegraph at night to go out and remove all wrecks and indeed to do everything at one time for eight days i was constantly upon the line day and night at one wreck or obstruction after another i was probably the most inconsiderate superintendent that ever was entrusted with the management of a great property for, never knowing fatigue myself, being kept up by a sense of responsibility, probably, I overworked the men and was not careful enough in considering the limits of human endurance. I have always been able to sleep at any time. Snatches of half an hour at intervals during the night in a dirty freight car were sufficient. The Civil War brought such extraordinary demands on the Pennsylvania line that I was at last compelled to organize a night force, but it was with difficulty I obtained the consent of my superiors to entrust the charge of the line at night to a train dispatcher. Indeed, I never did get their unequivocal authority to do so, but upon my own responsibility, I appointed perhaps the first night train dispatcher that ever acted in America. At least he was the first upon the Pennsylvania system. Upon our return to Pittsburgh in 1860, we rented a house in Hancock Street now 8th Street, and resided there for a year or more. Any accurate description of Pittsburgh at that time would be set down as a piece of the grossest exaggeration. The smoke permeated and penetrated everything. If you placed your hand on the balustrade of the stair, it came away black. If you washed face and hands, they were as dirty as ever in an hour." the soot gathered in the hair and irritated the skin and for a time after our return from the mountain atmosphere of altoona life was more or less miserable we soon began to consider how we could get to the country and fortunately at that time mr d a stewart then freight agent for the company directed our attention to a house adjoining his residence at homewood we moved there at once and the telegraph was brought in, which enabled me to operate the division from the house when necessary. Here a new life was opened to us. There were country lanes and gardens in abundance. Residences had from five to twenty acres of land about them. The Homewood estate was made up of many hundreds of acres, with beautiful woods and glens and a running brook. We too had a garden and a considerable extent of ground around our house the happiest years of my mother's life were spent here among her flowers and chickens and the surroundings of country life her love of flowers was a passion she was scarcely ever able to gather a flower indeed i remember she once reproached me for pulling up a weed saying it was something green i have inherited this peculiarity and have often walked from the house to the gate intending to pull a flower for my buttonhole and then left for town unable to find one i could destroy With this change to the country came a whole host of new acquaintances. Many of the wealthy families of the district had their residences in this delightful suburb. It was, so to speak, the aristocratic quarter. To the entertainments at these great houses the young superintendent was invited. The young people were musical, and we had musical evenings a-plenty. I heard subjects discussed which I had never known before, and I made it a rule when I heard these to learn something about them at once. I was pleased every day to feel that I was learning something new. It was here that I first met the Vandevoort brothers, Benjamin and John. The latter was my traveling companion on various trips which I took later in life. Dear Vandy appears as my chum in round the world. Our neighbors, Mr. and Mrs. Stewart, became more and more dear to us, and the acquaintance we had before ripened into lasting friendship one of my pleasures is that mr stewart subsequently embarked in business with us and became a partner as bandy did also greatest of all the benefits of our new home however was making the acquaintance of the leading family of western pennsylvania that of the hon judge wilkins the judge was then approaching his eightieth year tall slender and handsome in full possession of his faculties with a courtly grace of manner and the most wonderful store of knowledge and reminiscence of any man i had yet been privileged to meet his wife the daughter of george w dallas vice-president of the united states has ever been my type of gracious womanhood in age the most beautiful most charming venerable old lady i ever knew or saw her daughter miss wilkins with her sister mrs saunders and her children resided in the stately mansion at homewood which was to the surrounding district what the baronial hall in britain is or should be to its district the centre of all that was cultured refined and elevating to me it was especially pleasing that i seemed to be a welcome guest there musical parties, charades, and theatricals in which Miss Wilkins took the leading parts furnished me with another means of self-improvement. The judge himself was the first man of historical note whom I had ever known. I shall never forget the impression it made upon me when, in the course of conversation, wishing to illustrate a remark, he said, President Jackson once said to me, or I told the Duke of Wellington, so and so. The judge, in his earlier life, 1834, had been minister to Russia under Jackson, and in the same easy way spoke of his interview with the Tsar. It seemed to me that I was touching history itself. The house was a new atmosphere, and my intercourse with the family was a powerful stimulant to the desire for improvement of my own mind and manners. The only subject upon which there was always a decided, though silent, antagonism between the Wilkins family and myself was politics. I was an ardent, free-soiler, in days when to be an abolitionist was somewhat akin to being a Republican in Britain. The Wilkinses were strong Democrats with leanings toward the South, being closely connected with leading Southern families. On one occasion at Homewood, on entering the drawing-room, I found the family excitedly conversing about a terrible incident that had recently occurred. "'What do you think?' said Mrs. Wilkins to me. Dallas, her grandson, writes me that he has been compelled by the commander of West Point to sit next to a negro. Did you ever hear the like of that? Is it not disgraceful? Negroes, admitted to West Point. Oh, I said, Mrs. Wilkins, there is something even worse than that. I understand that some of them have been admitted to heaven. There was a silence that could be felt. Then dear Mrs. Wilkins said gravely, that is a different matter mr carnegie by far the most precious gift ever received by me up to that time came about in this manner dear mrs wilkins began knitting an afghan and during the work many were the inquiries as to whom it was for no the dear queenly old lady would not tell she kept her secret all the long months until christmas drawing near the gift finished and carefully wrapped up and her card with a few loving words enclosed she instructed her daughter to address it to me It was duly received in new york such a tribute from such a lady well that afghan though often shown to dear friends has not been much used it is sacred to me and remains among my precious possessions I had been so fortunate as to meet Lila Addison while living in Pittsburgh, the talented daughter of Dr. Addison, who had died a short time before. I soon became acquainted with the family and record with grateful feelings the immense advantage which that acquaintance also brought to me. Here was another friendship formed with people who had all the advantages of the higher education. Carlyle had been Mrs. Addison's tutor for a time, for she was an Edinburgh lady her daughters had been educated abroad and spoke french spanish and italian as fluently as english it was through intercourse with this family that i first realized the indescribable yet immeasurable gulf that separates the highly educated from people like myself but the wee drop a scotch bluid atween us proved its potency as usual Miss Addison became an ideal friend because she undertook to improve the rough diamond, if it were indeed a diamond at all. She was my best friend, because my severest critic. I began to pay strict attention to my language, and to the English classics, which I now read with great avidity. I began also to notice how much better it was to be gentle in tone and manner, polite and courteous to all, in short, better behaved. Up to this time I had been, perhaps, careless in dress, and rather affected it. Great heavy boots, loose collar, and general roughness of attire were then peculiar to the West and, in our circle, considered manly. Anything that could be labeled foppish was looked upon with contempt. I remember the first gentleman I ever saw in the service of the railway company who wore kid gloves. He was the object of derision among us who aspired to be manly men. I was a great deal the better in all these respects, after we moved to Homewood, owing to the Addisons. End of Chapter 7 Recording by William Tomko Chapter 8 of Autobiography of Andrew Carnegie by Andrew Carnegie This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by William Tomco Autobiography of Andrew Carnegie by Andrew Carnegie, Chapter 8, Civil War Period. In 1861, the Civil War broke out, and I was at once summoned to Washington by Mr. Scott, who had been appointed Assistant Secretary of War in charge of the Transportation Department i was to act as his assistant in charge of the military railroads and telegraphs of the government and to organize a force of railway men it was one of the most important departments of all at the beginning of the war the first regiments of union troops passing through baltimore had been attacked and the railway line cut between baltimore and annapolis junction destroying communication with washington It was therefore necessary for me, with my corps of assistants, to take train at Philadelphia for Annapolis, a point from which a branch line extended to the junction, joining the main line to Washington. Our first duty was to repair this branch and make it passable for heavy trains, a work of some days. General Butler and several regiments of troops arrived a few days after us, and we were able to transport his whole brigade to Washington i took my place upon the first engine which started for the capital and proceeded very cautiously some distance from washington i noticed that the telegraph wires had been pinned to the ground by wooden stakes i stopped the engine and ran forward to release them but i did not notice that the wires had been pulled to one side before staking when released in their spring upwards they struck me in the face knocked me over and cut a gash in my cheek which bled profusely In this condition I entered the city of Washington with the first troops, so that, with the exception of one or two soldiers, wounded a few days previously in passing through the streets of Baltimore, I can justly claim that I shed my blood for my country, among the first of its defenders. I gloried in being useful to the land that had done so much for me, and worked, I can truly say, night and day, to open communication to the South." i soon removed my headquarters to alexandria virginia and was stationed there when the unfortunate battle of bull run was fought we could not believe the reports that came to us but it soon became evident that we must rush every engine and car to the front to bring back our defeated forces the closest point then was burke station i went out there and loaded up train after train of the poor wounded volunteers the rebels were reported to be close upon us and we were finally compelled to close Burke station the operator and myself leaving on the last train for alexandria where the effect of panic was evident upon every side some of our railway men were missing but the number at the mess on the following morning showed that compared with other branches of the service we had cause for congratulation a few conductors and engineers had obtained boats and crossed the potomac but the great body of the men remained although the roar of the guns of the pursuing enemy was supposed to be heard in every sound during the night of our telegraphers not one was missing the next morning soon after this i returned to washington and made my headquarters in the war building with colonel scott as i had charge of the telegraph department as well as the railways this gave me an opportunity of seeing president lincoln mr seward secretary cameron and others and i was occasionally brought in personal contact with these men which was to me a source of great interest mr lincoln